pursuing the truth, living in love. Veritas is a grassroots network of Catholic young adults growing together in Christ. For more information or to see a schedule of Veritas events, visit catholicveritas.com. That's catholicveritas.com. Today's podcast features a monk's cellar event with Father Francisco Nahoy of the Conventual Franciscans. He's served the church and the order in the U.S., Costa Rica, Italy, Poland, and Vietnam, and has ministered in Catholic education, Catholic campus ministry, Franciscan formation, Catholic radio, adult faith formation, parochial ministry, teaching ESL, and mission promotion. At present, he preaches mission appeals throughout the Western United States. In this episode, Friar Francisco explores the implications of the Genesis narrative of Adam and Eve for meaningful spiritual and effective growth in the contemporary disciple. Let's tune in. Father Francisco Nahoy, it's been almost 25 years since we saw each other. He was my English teacher in my senior year of high school at Bishop Montgomery High School. And there I got to know someone who is brilliant and witty and funny, and you're going to experience that here too. A gentleman, a scholar, and a saint. So without any further ado, I would like to introduce you to Father Francisco Namoy. I'm not so sure about the saint part. But I'm pretty sure I could be a martyr if they kill me quick. Um, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And the Word became flesh. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known through the message of the angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> Terrific. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Um, do you all know the title of this talk? It's called Sex and the Nuisance of Sin. Now, you may be saying, what does he possibly know about sex? Okay, fair enough. 
but I know all about sin. <laughs> so it, it'll be more heavily slanted to that end of the, the spectrum. Um, in antiquity, and almost certainly something that the church inherited from first century Palestinian Judaism, the fathers developed a method of reading the sacred scripture that involved careful, close reading of the text to determine the literal sense of whatever passions of scripture were under scrutiny at the moment. But because the, f the, 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 the sacred scripture is the word of God, and because we understand the word of God first and foremost to be the person who is the second person of the Trinity become flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, the word of God, if it resembles the word made flesh, will be both human and divine, both literal and spiritual. So in addition to the kind of close reading that establishes the literal meaning of the sacred text, the fathers of the church also wanted to know how the church could understand and identify itself in the words of sacred scripture. This is often referred to as the allegorical meaning of the text. And also how the individual soul is meant to understand itself to be involved in the scriptural drama. This is sometimes referred to as the moral sense of scripture. And finally, there is also that sense which draws us to heaven, not the text as a, a datum of history or a, a literary artifact to be parsed, but as God himself revealing himself to the, to the world. And when the text reaches off the page, so to speak, to, 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 to grab you by the clothes and shake you around, we would call this the anagogical sense of scripture. I know that's a fancy word, but any of those gogical words have to do with leading something, right? In a synagogue, we are led together. A pedagogue leads a child, hence pedagogy has to do with education. And anagogy is leading us toward our end, which Deo Volente will be heaven. So I want to propose a kind of moral reading of three passages from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that you may already be familiar with. So what the heck, if you guys have like, <clears throat> I don't know, Bible apps on your phones or any device that you may have, by all means, pull it out. If you don't, I have Xerox. I know that's really old school, but um, Chris will pass them out if you just raise your hand if you want to see the, the texts that we'll be looking at. <clears throat> Thank you. 
So the first passage that I, I, I want to think about with you is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. It's the first sort of paragraph cluster on the page. And um, if you have a, like a Bible app, I'm reading off of the New American Bible, Revised Edition, The Neighbor, right? Um, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops says, love your neighbor, right? Because they hold the copyright. <coughs> so this is the text I'd like to, to think about with you. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame animals, all the wild animals, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So the, the first thing that I want to call to your attention in our sort of literal reading of the text is that interesting shift from the singular, man, to the plural, them, male and female. And <coughs> the, the text in Hebrew is, is singular, male, but then shifts likewise to plural, male and female. So the creation of the human species is uh, wh what the text seems to be speaking about. Now I just want to establish that and move quickly to Genesis chapter 2 verses 20 and following. Genesis chapter 2, if, if we think of Genesis chapter 1, which is the story of the six days, as concerned with the big picture, cosmology, so to speak, Genesis chapter 2 focuses on one element of the creation, and that is the human person. So you could think of Genesis chapter 2 as anthropology. And uh, in that light, Let's see what kind of anthropology emerges from our reading of this text. The man gave names to all the tame animals, all the birds of the air, and all the wild animals, but none proved to be a helper suited to the man. Earlier in the chapter, you'll recall that God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. And then he brings all of the creatures that he created before the man to see what he would name them. So I want to pause for a moment on this naming motif. The human creature is not the strongest by any means, nor the most ferocious, but somehow has dominion. And we might ask ourselves, in what does that dominion consist? No small part of it, it seems to me, is the capacity to name things. And I don't just mean this in the sort of 
idealized platonic thing. But if we can name something, we exert a kind of power over it. Um, I don't know, I, are any of you doctors or did you go to medical school? I'm, I'm told that in the first year of medical school, a med student will learn something on the order of 45, 50,000 new terms. By the way, 85% of those terms are Greek. So I used to tell my students, you want to go to medical school? Study Greek. And what precisely does medicine do with that particularized kind of naming that makes it possible to diagnose disease, to prescribe therapeutic courses of action. The capacity to name and to understand the relationship between the things that are named is how the human being exercises dominion in the world. So if in Genesis chapter 1, God's activity on the sixth day gives man dominion over the world, we're now getting a kind of microscopic view of that in the naming of the creatures. But notice that none of the creatures whom man names prove to be a suitable partner for him. As if to suggest that suitable partnership is not the kind of thing characterized by the exercise of power. Um, I, I, my cousin hates it when I, I use this example, but when she was I I a teenager, she changed her name, right? She went to summer camp one year and came back and had a new name. Not, not that the family ever called her that new name, but every person that she met thereafter, for the rest of high school, for college, for her professional career, they all know her by the new name that she gave herself at summer camp one year. Now what is that if not the young person saying, in so many words, you're not the boss of me anymore. You don't exercise the kind of power over me that once you exercised. And even if it's not a dramatic name change, even if it's just the shift from Bobby to Robert, there is still a kind of self-possession and assertion when somebody says, this now is my name. Why? Because we, we recognize that there's a certain kind of power exercised by naming. But none of the things that man names turn out to be a suitable partner for him. Now remember in the previous passage that we looked, looked at, the text underscores that man is created male and female. So we've already got the principle according to which sexual reproduction takes place. I take it that chapter 2, the microscopic focus on anthropology, is not about the emergence of one gender after the other. 
I think we can assume that they already both exist. And that suitable partnership then is not simply a question of identifying a potential reproductive partner. That's not the anthropological interest of this text. Whatever suitable partnership is, whatever it means for God to say it is not good for the man to be alone, goes beyond simply the question of sexual reproduction. And so the Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man and while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then built the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman. Now let's talk about the rib for a moment. Um, if I remember correctly, in the, in the, the, the Midrash on Genesis, Rabbinical doctrine holds that God did not form woman out of the foot of man because she is not inferior to him, nor from the head of man because she is not superior to him, but from his side because she is equal to him in all things. But I want to ask now, I mean, how arbitrary is that, the rib? Why the rib? Think about what the rib encloses. Did somebody say heart just a second ago? Yeah. Um, right, the rib cage, the thoracic cavity here, encloses the heart and the lungs, which turn out to be ancient metaphors for the spirit, right? So uh, you'll hear, for example, my soul uh, proclaims the greatness of the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Well, it turns out that Our Lady is paraphrasing the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel, in which instead of spirit, Hannah says, my heart rejoices in God my Savior. Heart is very often what represents spirit. Take, for example, the prophet Ezekiel, who says, I will put a new heart in you. Take away your stony hearts and give you a heart of flesh. And what he's speaking of, of course, is the spiritual renewal of Israel. So um, the thoracic cavity contains the heart, that metaphor for spirit, and the lungs, which, you know, the word spirit is just the Latin word for breath, spiritus. So I take it that the rib cage, if it's compromised in that way, if, if you take a rib out, what happens? Does it not expose the spirit of the man, which has already been transformed by God breathing into him? So I, as I understand it, a rib in this text is, uh, the technical term is metonymy. The rib here is a metonym. Metonymy is where we use something associated with a thing to stand for the thing. Let me see if I can give you an example. Um, how about 
the White House announced yesterday, well, it doesn't, it's not that building at 1600 Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue that said, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> what that means is uh, the executive branch of government, which we associate with the president who resides in the White House, that's the organ of government that's speaking. So we use the White House to refer to presidential administration. That's what I think, that's how I think rib is functioning in this text. Rib is a metonym based on proximity for heart, for spirit. So in fact, if I'm correct, that would mean that the Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man, meaning he was not aware of what was going on. And while he was not aware, he took out a portion of that same spirit that he had previously vivified himself by breathing into the man and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then built out of that spirit that he first had endowed the man with the woman. When he brought her to the man, the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What does he recognize in the woman, if not a share of that same spirit of God that vivifies him? And just hold on to that for, for a minute. Will you? Well, I was going to say, to follow your reasoning a little farther, you could say that removing, I was going to say that removing the rib left the man in a certain sense vulnerable to the woman. In a sense, like the way you were talking about the ribs. Oh, we're going to talk about vulnerability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee. Yes, absolutely. So that, that's definitely foreshadowed here, but it actually becomes quite a bit more specific, as we'll see in just a few moments. Now, uh, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For out of man, this one has been taken. Uh, this doesn't work in English at all. We have to think in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for man is ish. And the word for woman is isha. But it also happens that if you are going to add a possessive pronoun to a word, you often add it as an inflection at the end of the word. So if you're saying her man, the man part is ish, and in this case the possessive pronoun is also ah. So the word woman, isha, also means her man, isha. Let's see if we can make sense of this now. This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of, this is a, um, a lacuna in my translation, for out of her man, this one has been taken. Now in my mind, the man does not in fact name the woman. He recognizes in the woman what he recognizes in himself. And that's, uh, I think, the, the, the impact and import 
of this Hebrew play on words, ish, isha. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. Why does sexual union take place? Because man and woman recognize in one another a share of the same spirit of God that vivifies him or her. So what comes first is the recognition of the Spirit of God. Then they cling to one another and become one body. And then the man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. So what is nakedness in this text, if not complete self-disclosure, the one to the other? You could think of it this way. The man knows that the woman sees right into him everything that is there. And he is not ashamed because there is nothing to be ashamed of. And the woman knows that the man sees everything that is in her and she is not ashamed because she knows that there is nothing to be ashamed of. Now, I don't want to call this vulnerability yet because the word vulnerability comes from the Latin vulnera, which means wound. There hasn't been a wound yet. They've not been wounded. So this is not vulnerability yet. This is, I don't know, for lack of a better word, transparency. They are completely transparent one to another and yet they know no shame. So this is my interpretation of the word naked. It doesn't mean that they ain't got no clothes on. That might also be the case, right? But that's not the issue. The issue is their complete transparency one to the other. But all of that changes radically in the arc of the next 15 verses from Genesis chapter 3. If Genesis chapter 1 is a theological treatise in cosmology, and Genesis chapter 2 is a theological treatise in anthropology, it seems to me that Genesis chapter 3 is where we first begin to hear about sin and grace. So let's take a look at this fairly closely. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He asked the woman, Did God really say, You shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat it or even touch it, or else you will die. Now you may ask, if this tree is fatal, why does God place it in the garden? But it seems to me that the tree represents simply the limits 
of freedom. God says, I give you freedom, the whole of the garden, but do not abuse the freedom you are given. And the tree at the center of the garden represents that limitation beyond which freedom becomes abuse of freedom. Now, what's the first thing you notice about this serpent? Yeah, he, he speaks English or Hebrew, <laughs> right? <coughs> so that's um, uh, right. Uh, Harry Potter and parcel tongue notwithstanding, <laughs> this is not the kind of serpent you would normally encounter. Um, so this is this is the cue that we're talking about a spiritual being, and a spiritual being that is characterized by serpentine qualities, probably deceit because of the camouflage and uh, the, the potential for a lethal strike because of the venom. So lethal deceit, I think, is what's what we're meant to take away from the, 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 the serpentine quality here. So the the adversary is described here as a serpent and he asks a question did God really say you shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden and the woman's reply makes it clear that he did to which the serpent then replies in verse 4 you certainly will not die God knows well that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know good and evil. This is an example of the fiend that lies like truth. Are you familiar with that? It's, um, it's Macbeth. Um, act five, I forget which scene, but it's where, where um, the, there's a messenger who comes rushing in shortly after Lady Macbeth is found dead and he says to the king, as I did keep my watch upon the hill, I looked and anon methought the wood began to move. And he, so he's, this is the, the, the prophecy that Macbeth shall never vanquished be till great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinane Hill doth come. And here the, the messenger is saying, I'm seeing the hill creeping up the mountain. Right, so we know from a previous scene that Malcolm and the English General Seward have commanded the troops to cut off branches from the trees to camouflage their approach to Dunsinane. But when Macbeth hears that, he says, at last I do begin to doubt the fiend that lies like truth. Because all this time he'd been operating on the assumption that he was invincible because the otherworldly powers had implied to him that he was. In fact, they lied to him with truths. Earlier in the play, as if to warn Macbeth away from the disastrous course upon which he is about to veer, 
His closest associate, Banquo, says, But tis strange, and oftentimes, to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths. Win us with honest trifles, only to betray us in deepest consequence. And that, of course, is precisely what the fiend has done in this moment. He has attempted to win her with the honest trifle, you will be like gods who know good and evil. But she is already created in the image and likeness of God. She already has an essential dignity that she did not bestow upon herself. Created in the image of God, she has intellect and will, and she is herself precious, irreplaceable, beloved, and sacred. This is what God is. And she is like the Creator by the Creator's command. But let's speak for just a moment about what it means to know good and evil. Surely knowing good and evil is better than just knowing good. At least John Milton argues as much in the Areopagitica when he's arguing against the censorship of the press. But remember, evil is not something distinct from the good. Evil is not the opposite of good. Evil is the privation of good. It's less good than good. Think of it this way. Even Satan is good in as much as he is. His being was conferred upon him by God, and he cannot take his being away. In as much as he is, St. Thomas Aquinas says, he is good. In as much as he acts, he acts evilly. Evil is not an ontological condition. Evil is a deprivation of the good. She already has the maximum of the good. In order to have good and evil, she has to pull away from the good. She doesn't realize this. It sounds like it's more, but in fact, it's less. Why? Because the fiend lies like truth. Finally, I want to call your attention to the passage, your eyes will be opened. Ha, diggity dang. 
because that's what I've wanted all this time for my eyes to be open they are already naked before one another the one is completely transparent to the other and vice versa they already see as much as can be seen but they are told that their eyes will be open the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom formerly her access to wisdom had been the source of wisdom itself that is to say God the Creator but now she has redirected her desire for wisdom from the Creator to a created thing and um, yeah I mean you can imagine that's never a good thing to do so she took some of its fruit and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it he wasn't absent while this temptation was taking place he was a protagonist by the very fact of his silence and complicit in her act by not having objected the principle is that silence implies consent then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked <laughs> uh oh I don't got no clothes oh. <laughs> I mean, it's such a ridiculous proposition, right? Obviously, they knew they were naked before. So what's happened here, it seems to me, is that the term naked has undergone some kind of semantic shift. Because formerly, it referred to that radical transparency that characterized the relationship between them after their conjugal union remember nakedness comes after they cleave unto one another and become one flesh but now it means something completely different so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves they're attempting to impede the clear vision that the other has of what's inside each is trying to do this remember the woman looks into the man and sees everything that there is to see and he knows that she sees everything that there is to see and whereas formerly he was not ashamed because there was nothing to be ashamed of now he is overwhelmed with shame because he knows that she sees his disobedience and the same with her now in this condition when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking about in the garden at the breezy time of the day I assume that means the evening hours the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden Now I'm gonna ask you and this is a serious question how do you hide yourself from an omniscient being right how do you hide yourself from 
a spirit. Believe it or not, I think it can be done. You hide yourself from a spiritual being spiritually. It sounds like this. Um, I don't have a drinking problem. I can quit whenever I want. So whatever that, that mechanism, we, we might call it denial or compartmentalization, whatever that is, that's the mechanism that's being engaged. And that's the hiding motif, right? But it, it is precisely through the thick of that fog that <coughs> the Lord God pierces when he says, where are you? I take it he's not asking a topographical question, like where in the garden are you to be found? He's saying, what's going on up here? What are you thinking? Where are you? To which the man replies, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. Now remember, nakedness has undergone some kind of semantic shift here. And this now means shame. Formerly, it meant the opposite of shame. But I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, who told you that? You were naked. I almost want to say that these are the most important words in all of Scripture. Who told you that? Let's work backwards. Who did not tell him that he ought to be ashamed? Unless I'm completely misreading the Scriptures, it was not God who said to him, you ought to be ashamed. So there's only three possibilities. The man can have said it to himself, or the woman can have said it to him, which would be the pot calling the kettle black. Or, golly, there's still another character in this garden, isn't there? A character whom we know to be subtle and deceitful and lethal. And I want to suggest that there is a kind of phenomenology of temptation that's being mapped out for us in the text. It, it starts in the second person. You will be like gods. You will know good from evil. You're really going to love this. Come on, man, everybody's doing it. And then it shifts from the second person address, and, and I'm, I'm kind of imagining, you know, actually, you know, you, you address somebody in the second person when you're standing in front of them and you see them. That's the front end of temptation. We might call it temptation proper. But I also want to call to your attention the back end of temptation, where that same tempter now becomes the accuser and stands not in front of you, but behind you. And this is what he says. He doesn't say you, you, you anymore. He says, I feel so ashamed. I can never approach God. I cannot look at the woman. And God is saying, who told you that? 
in the book of Revelation, we're, we're going from the beginning to the end here pretty rapidly. In chapter 12, we hear these words. Now is the accuser of our brothers cast out, who night and day accused them before God. The accuser, the adversary, as he's called elsewhere in the scripture, is that same ancient serpent, now figuring as a dragon in the book of Revelation. It is the nature of temptation to come at us from both sides and to convince us of the irreparable nature of our transgression should we transgress. Now, God challenges the man. He's trying to rock him out of his stupor. He says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I had forbidden you to eat? In other words, have you abused the freedom that I gave you? The man replied, The woman whom you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, so I ate it. Whom does he blame? The woman whom you put here with me the woman whom you said was for my good, the woman whom you formed out of my rib, she gave it to me. Now, don't misunderstand me. The transgression of free will is a bad thing. The material act of eating the forbidden fruit is a bad thing. The disobedience is a bad thing. But in principle, none of those things are irreparable. If instead of accusing God of the responsibility for this disaster, the man had said, I did do that. Oh my goodness, I'm so foolish. Can you ever forgive me? But this is not the man's response. The man's response instead is in a certain sense to insulate himself from the next good thing that God would give him. For as beautiful as the garden is, as beautiful as his relationship with the woman is, man has lost that. He could have it in return if he would open himself to God. It seems to me the next good thing that God can give after the garden, after the relationship with the woman, is the good of forgiveness. But in fact, the man has insulated himself from whatever God calls good. He says, what you have called good, in fact, is ill for me. And this is the first experience of vulnerability. This is the wound that man has inflicted on himself but holds God responsible for. 
I want to say that this is the source of original sin. Original sin is not the empirical act of eating the fruit, nor even the interior disposition of disobedience, though those things are not good. Why? Because those things in principle can be forgiven. And when God forgives sin, it is completely eradicated and we stand before him as if we had never sinned. But the man's attitude toward God precludes the possibility that he can be open to the transformative power of God's forgiveness. And this is the locus of what we call original sin. Or, we might say, this is the real nuisance of sin. That it impedes, indeed cripples, the purity of the conjugal union that had characterized the relationship between the man and the woman before sin and transforms the good of nakedness into the shame of nakedness. So um, by astonishing act of divine providence, because we did not coordinate it this way, Father Cashin is going to take this up next time and speak to you about the transformative power of God's grace unleashed on human sexuality in sacramental terms. But I think in order to understand the backdrop against which that magnificent power of sacramental grace enters the world, it's helpful to know about the nuisance of sin. Thank you very much. I'm open to questions if you have. Do, do you want to keep this on for questions too? Please. Okay. That's okay. So if you're far away, um, I'll just repeat your question if I can hear it so that everybody can hear it and we can put it on the podcast. If you're near, I'll just hand the microphone to you. Yeah, please. I used to, um, Father Cashin can attest to this, I used to tell my AP Litton Comp students, if you've missed the irony, you've missed the meaning. And it seems to me clear that their eyes being opened is an ironic statement that completely undermines the apparent meaning of the text. It's like, for example, if, if you were to stumble and I were to say, well, that's a clever move. Or, or if, if um, I don't know, if, if, you, if you wear something uh, awkward 
and I say, well, that's a beautiful dress or whatever, and, and the tone of my voice undermines the, the apparent meaning of the words, we call that verbal irony. And I think that's precisely what's being deployed in the text. Their eyes are opened and, uh-oh, I don't got no clothes on. <laughs> right, I mean, it's completely ridiculous. They knew that they were naked before. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I don't know if this is an entirely plausible reading. Well, <laughs> well, Sophocles is much on my mind lately. Um, so the the irony of at least of the Sophoclean Oedipus is that, you know, early on, Tiresias, the blind prophet, actually sees more clearly than the riddle solver, Oedipus himself. And it's not until at last he sees that he has to, he feels compelled to pull out his eyes, right? So Sophocles is, is, is definitely playing around with this same kind of motif. We see it managed in a different way, actually in a more economical way in the scripture. It's a simple flip-flop that is meant to mirror the, the semantic change in the, the content of the word naked or the concept of nakedness. So just like that gets flip-flopped, so the, their eyes being opened gets flip-flopped too. In fact, it's exactly the opposite that happens to them. They start not being able to look at each other. That's an ironic opening of the eyes indeed. Please. The question is, is it significant that God uh, commanded the man not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before the woman is quote-unquote formed? And I think it is actually significant because she repeats to the serpent what she did not hear God say directly. So her knowledge of it comes from the man at least insofar as the sequence of this text is concerned. If, if there was ex parte communication, it's not recorded in the text. So the implication is that she knows from the man. And this is important because human beings are meant to know God's will from the honest report of others, and especially in the unity that <coughs> characterizes man and woman. You have something to add to that? Yes. And, Please. And that's a two-part question. So the second part of it would be... Uh, um, so it's a two-part question. This is the second part. Yeah. The second part is, if Adam knew this, uh, was it important for him to communicate this as, as let's say, an elder or a more... A husband. Protect. A husband. And protect her from the serpent. So the question is, if... If the man knew this, did he have some sort of responsibility to, for example, reinforce the commandment that the, the Lord had given or to protect the woman or to assert some kind of authority in this case? And remember that we, I, I sort of emphasized it in my reading of it. Um, 
and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And I, I, think, I, I think I pointed out that his silence here is precisely what um, involves him in this sin. So we, we often think, well, it was the woman who gave, so obviously she was man's downfall, et cetera, et cetera. Ah. He was a complete and, as far as we can tell, willing participant in the fall. Actually, interestingly, Milton makes this very clear. His, his sense of what the motivation was, I think, is not theologically tenable. But he is absolutely clear that the man uh, willingly and wholeheartedly participated in the fall. So absolutely, the answer is yes. Is it a fair read uh, to, his, to his point, right? insofar as Adam, is, it's, a, it's implied that Adam gave the order to Eve about what you can eat and what you can't eat because God tells Adam what he can eat and what he can't eat before Eve shows up. And then secondly, Eve eats and the fall doesn't happen, right? Their eyes aren't opened until Adam eats. But then it's even explicit when God talks to Adam, it's not on this paper here, but the following verse, I think, is God giving the very reason for the fall, that is, Adam, because you listened to your wife, that is, because he obeyed the voice of his flesh, Eve, rather than the Logos, right, that he, he was given. So so is that, is that a fair read that would jive with your with your reading, and, and then is is that did the fall happen when Adam eats, or is it are you saying that it happened after Adam does not repent? Give me just a second. There are a cluster of moments that constitute the fall. And uh, so one of them is the woman desiring the fruit of the tree for wisdom. The transfer from the wisdom that comes from the creator to, you know, sort of mapping that onto a part of the creation. The second is the empirical act of eating the fruit, both on the part of the woman and the man, because the, the text seems to emphasize by saying, for he was with her, that there is a kind of mutuality there. The third is their reaction to opening their eyes. So it's not the opening of their eyes that we're interested in, it's the fact that they try to cover themselves. And the fourth is his rejection of what God has called good. It is not good for man to be alone, therefore I will give him a helpmate. Now, I almost want to say that if at any one of these moments either of the protagonists had retreated from the position and said, oh, shh, what am I doing? This is, no, no, this is not, this can't, this can't be what it means to have one's eyes open. 
that there is redemptive space in there for the transformative power of God to, to, to work and to be received. But at every instance, it is precisely that transformative power of God that's being rejected or pushed away. And I want to locate original sin in that cluster of events that are all characterized by the same disposition of pushing God away. Does that make sense? Yes. Go ahead. I was going to say, I'd have to look at the sources, but I know some of the fathers of the church in their exegesis on Genesis, they talk about that Adam committed, in a sense, seven sins, whereas Eve only committed five. Part of that is he didn't protect her. Right. Mm -hmm. Also, I would, um, I was going to say two was, I don't know, I'm blank now. It's okay. So um, basically you've outed me and <laughs> what I'm presenting to you as this kind of groovy new reading of Genesis is in fact <laughs> derived from the fathers of the church, um, specifically Augustine. Oh, I remember what I was yeah. going to say. Oh. But um, also what's interesting is the point, the point that the scripture itself says is that basically they heard God's footsteps in the garden. Mm -hmm. God is spirit, but he give, he's, he's walking towards them. Mm -hmm. He's basically giving Adam this, this chance to basically out himself and say, please God have mercy on me. Mm -hmm. And then he calls to him. Mm -hmm. And then he still asks him, who told you this? So mm -hmm. he gives him basically three chances mm -hmm. to to ask for mercy. I, I, I think, you know, if we count it up, it, it'll end up being something more like seven so, times, seven times. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm struck again and again by the, the language that the, the Yahwist scribe uses. Uh, it's very um, tactile, right? They can hear the sound of the Lord God walking. And I, at least um, a, a good number of the fathers regard this as the kind of unity of body and spirit that was always intended for humankind. They're still in almost their pristine condition. So spiritual reality is almost present in a tactile way to them. It's, it's what the scribe seems to be implying. And um, uh, the, the guy who directed my master's thesis a few years afterwards uh, edited a book called The Spiritual Senses. He's, he's an Orthodox, um, a Russian Orthodox theologian, um, in, in which uh, a, a number of contemporary theologians explore primarily um, patristic and medieval doctrine on the spiritual senses and, and what uh, taste, touch, sight, and so forth mean in, in a spiritual way. It seems to me this is already tightly bound in, in the, the, the Yahwist's language. Thank you for pointing that out. Please.
So the interesting thing about um, reading chapter 3 immediately after chapter 2, I'm struck by the fact that there seem to be three stages outlined right at the very end of chapter 2. The first one is um, what I call recognition, or I think the term that I used uh, in the f at the front end of this presentation was identity. The man perceiving the same spirit of God that infuses him in the woman says, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, the principle of attraction is not that he recognizes a potential reproductive partner, but that he recognizes a spiritual partner. The second stage here is, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. And I called this conjugal union. But the act is voluntary and temporary. So presumably he's not constantly clinging to her. In fact, that, that is exactly a hellish possibility. <laughs> I'm thinking of, of the Inferno Canto V, where um, you know, Dante encounters uh, Francesca da Rimini and Paolo Malatesta, who are clinging together for all of eternity. And, you know, that's because, I mean, if you're not familiar with the, the passage, um, Francesca was married to Paolo's brother, um, the Count Malatesta, and fell in love with uh, her, her husband's brother and, and he with her. And they're reading Tristan and Isolde, or no, uh, anyway, one of the Arthurian romances they're reading to each other and they come together. And at precisely that moment, her husband, his brother, discovers them and passes a single stroke of the sword through both their bodies, they being so configured at the moment as to make that possible. And this is the condition in which they go into the afterworld. And uh, the, the, what, what fuels Dante's um, imagination of hell is a principle called the contrapasso. The contrapasso is where it turns out that all the souls in hell have received exactly what they most desire. What they desire more than God. In this case, that erotic embrace. But, you know, an erotic embrace doesn't mean very much when you ain't got no body no more, which is all the rest of eternity. So, um, if that if we can sort of work backwards from that, if that's the opposite of conjugal union, what then is conjugal union? It's not characterized by a, 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 a continuous, you know, an expansion of a single moment into forever. It's characterized by a voluntary consort led by the spirit and sustained by mutual transparency, which is the third part. The man and his wife were both naked and yet they felt no shame. Is that helpful?
I think especially in the, the post-lapsarian state, after the fall, um, it, it seems clear that conjugal union is also meant to be the context that, pres that generates, preserves, and protects the procreation of life. So um, you could think of it this way. Um, the, the text suggests that the man and the woman know each other completely and feel no shame. And there's no mention at this point of the generation of life, of procreation. It doesn't come until later. But what we do know is that in the aftermath of the fall, we are told again and again that marriage oriented toward the good of the spouses and the procreation of life preserves those elements of the grace we were given before the fall that we did not lose in the fall, that was not forfeited by sin, that was not washed away in the flood. So this is always the, this is the, the, the classical Catholic reply to the Calvinist position of total depravity, which says, well, okay, yeah, there's a wicked lot of depravity. We totally grant that. But in matrimony, in human marriage, there is an essential good that was not forfeited in original sin, that was not washed away in the flood. No, to go on the lines of that last question, as far as the unitive and the procreative, um, the, kind of the, there's always been this kind of, maybe these two camps in the church, the Puritan and the, or maybe the Caustic Canubi and the, maybe the John Paul II, uh, unitive versus procreative. It seems to me that that, that sort of, that like the last question and, and what you just said is, there can't be a, a procreative without the first, the union. And why is there this kind of this, this constant two camps in the, the Catholic Church? Maybe it's the Puritanism that came in. It's the effect of sin. What God has joined together, let no man rend asunder. And yet, it's the sinful inclination of man that does try to pull apart what's meant to be together. So I'm not just saying that there is a fundamentally dysfunctional um, theology at work. The, the dysfunction has its origins in the, the, the kind of bifurcation of the self that's created by sin. I'm guessing. Please, do you want to grab the microphone? I think we got enough room. Could you speak on why the serpent attacks I don't know. It's a fantastic question. I doubt if it's the matter of quote-unquote vulnerability because there hasn't been a vulnera yet. There hasn't been a wound. Um, this is, all I can say is this is a matter of tremendous speculation both for philosophers and for poets, or at least for theologians and for poets. 
But I think um, if, if, if I were pinned to the wall and forced to give an answer, I would say that um, the passage we've now referred to twice and that I'll refer us back to again. Um, so she took some of its fruit and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her suggests that he's not attacking the woman alone. He's attacking both of them simultaneously. So the question is, why does the woman become the spokesperson for the fall? And it would not surprise, I, I, can't, I can't say that I'm completely committed to this because I'm sort of thinking off the top of my head here, but it would not surprise me to discover that the reason is because there is a, a possibility that the man will intervene because he has an obligation to intervene. And the fact that he doesn't intervene turns out to make th this the sin of Adam. It's in Adam's fall that we sinned all, not Eve's. And this is the reason for that. So it, it, might, it might have something to do with that, but I can't say for sure. I think it does, yeah. I, I think that, so the, you all heard that, and I think the answer is yes, it does, and that's why I tried to start us off with Genesis chapter 1, which I take to refer, so verses 26, 27, and 28 in chapter 1 refer to the creation of the species. And from the get-go, we have this, this movement from the singular to the plural, and the singular can also be... Uh, you know, a singular plural, right? Uh, like we say mankind, as opposed to just a single uh, man. So if, if Genesis chapter 1 refers to the creation of the species, Genesis chapter 2 is not talking about the creation of man at all. And in fact, the, the Hebrew words are, are different. Um, Genesis chapter 2 uses this expression. It's right at the beginning of the Yahwistic account. Um, so it's got to be around like verse 4? Um, right, verse 7. Uh, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. In Genesis chapter 1, God created man, male and female, and confers upon them the, the dignity of his own image and likeness. In chapter 2, he forms a single man. He doesn't create a single man. He takes something that's already there, metaphorically dust, 
and, and he says, this one, I will breathe my spirit into. Why? I don't know why. Tertullian says that the, the human soul, meaning he means the mind, is configured in such a way as to receive the gospel, to know God, to receive divine revelation, the highest um, expression of which is the gospel itself. Now, if that's correct, that means that even before God breathes his spirit into one particular man, the whole of the human species is in principle capable of knowing God intimately. Not that anyone does yet know God intimately, but the species is capable of it because it is created in this way. So let's say, let's try to imagine this scenario. Um, we're out on the savanna and we're not the strongest animal out there or the most uh, rapacious um, but you know we've got reasonably good vision and that vision is constantly focused on the horizon right we're looking for our next meal and we're trying to be sure that we're not going to be something's next meal and at a certain point, that attention that we pay to the horizon, we look up into the splendor of the night sky and say, wow, that's beautiful. I wonder who made that. I want to know the one who made that. I think that's the scenario that's been captured for us in the Yahwistic account starting in verse 4 but cum culminating uh, here in verse 7 then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground man exists and man is you know both spirit and flesh but the spirit is uninformed until God forms him how by breathing a portion of his own spirit into the man so the 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 mythological language, I guess you could call it, um, is, is oriented toward this um, calling our attention to the special sharing of his spirit. It's one thing to be, to be created in the image and likeness of God, that is to say, to have intellect and will. It's another thing entirely for that intellect and will to be actualized by the transformative power of God's Spirit. And I take it that that's what verse 7 is about, whereas um, chapter 1 is about the creation of the species. It's like a proto-incarnation. Well, I mean, you say a proto-incarnation, but what the heck? St. Paul said, Christ is the real Adam. The first Adam fell. The new Adam brings us up. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, it is characteristic of the fathers of the church to read these passages that we've just looked at as a kind of um, uh, foreshadowing of precisely the mystery of the Incarnation. So, bravo. Somebody's been reading is St. Paul. Were, were you about to? Okay. 
So with that, let's say uh, Adam repents when God says, how did you know? Who told you you were naked? And Adam says, okay, I'm sorry. You know, have mercy on me. And I've always wanted to ask a Franciscan the primacy of Christ question. <laughs> but uh, would Jesus have been incarnate at that moment? Or would he have needed to have been for Adam to get the redemption and beatific vision? This is what I do, right, <laughs> for a living. This is, this is like, um, um, yeah, great set. He's referring to um, the, the medieval disputation between Dominicans and Franciscans. So the Dominican position was, if Adam had never fallen, Christ would not have come. Therefore, oh happy fault, oh necessary sin of Adam that won for us so great a redeemer. To which the Franciscans replied, no. Even if Adam had never fallen, the word would have become flesh because the highest purpose of the incarnation is not the redemption of man, but the divinization of man. So this is reflected in the contemporary catechism. Um, 457, 58, 59, and 60, to be exact. The question is posed, why did the word become flesh? We answer, of course, um, with the, the Nicene Creed, for us men and for our salvation. But specifically, the word became flesh to save us by reconciling us to the Father. Because none of what comes after that is possible without first rescuing man from the condition into which sin has immersed him. But the second purpose, higher still, is that mankind might know the love of God. The third reason the word became flesh, a higher purpose still, is to show that the holiness of God can coexist with human flesh. And the highest is to make us, as the scripture says, partakers of the divine nature. Now I actually did this experiment with, with um, second graders being prepared for their first Holy Communion. This is not human experimentation, okay? <laughs> okay, well maybe kind of it is. Um, <clears throat> But you know, do you remember those uh, chocolate oranges that we used to get at Christmas time? And they're, they're in like uh, orange-colored tin foil, and you put them on the table, and you whack them really hard, and then they fall into the, you know, into the, 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 the slices, right? And so I pass these slices out. Of course, well, second graders love anything that involves whacking <laughs> and chocolate, right? So I, I, I pass them out, I said, but don't touch them yet. I said, so I'm going to explain to you what's going to happen first. And so they're all waiting, right? I said, I'm going to share this with you, but you can't touch it and you definitely can't eat it. <laughs> hey, that's not sharing. I said, okay, okay, okay. Well, all right, so you can touch it, but you can't eat it. That's not sharing either. Okay, you can eat it eventually, but not now. That's not sharing either. 
What then is sharing? Sharing is placing something at the complete disposition of another. So if scripture says that in Christ we become sharers in the divine nature, could that possibly mean that we who are baptized, whose sins are forgiven, in whom the sacramental life of grace is initiated, who have become incorporated into the body of Christ, marked as it were with the sign of Christ himself such that when the Father looks upon our soul he sees the image of his Son and finds it beautiful. Is it possible for us to take the divine nature that we have become partakers in and drag it into sin? Could we do that? If we cannot do that, then we are not sharers in the divine nature. That is how vulnerable, to use the word again, God made himself first in the incarnation. And then every single time the fundamental mystery of the incarnation is repeated in the sacramental life of grace. The body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ that is made present to us in the Eucharistic mystery is made present to us in something very fragile. I, I can't tell you how, how it drives me crazy with people, and they may be being very pious, you know, I'm not necessarily saying they aren't, but if they receive, which generally speaking I'm not in favor of, but if, if they receive the, 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 the host in the hand and then start walking off before I see them consume it, I actually go chasing after them to make sure that they have consumed it. That's how fragile, how vulnerable God becomes. But it's not only in the sacrament of the Eucharist. It's first and foremost in the sacrament of baptism. So I, I want to say that, um, that the, the essential mystery of the incarnation is repeated again and again in all of its parts. And that includes the very vulnerability, vulnerability that made it possible for uh, the eternal word of God to be crucified by unholy men. That's the same vulnerability that Christ has in our hearts. And that's why we say, you know, when, when we make the act of contrition, it's not just because I dread the loss of heaven and fear the pains of hell. Don't misunderstand me. I wicked dread the loss of heaven and fear the pains of hell. But in my truest moments, I recognize it is because God is all good and I desire to respond to the God who is good in that way. I desire that his tremendous condescension expressed in this vulnerability which shows me his love, I desire that it be reciprocated in as much as I'm able to do so. So are we wrapping up? Very good. Um, let's conclude then. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned 
in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and in what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Please stand. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Sponsored by St. Joseph Morello Parish in Granite Bay, California, and St. Mel Parish in Fair Oaks, California. Our podcast features recordings of live talks delivered to young adults packed into the best pub in California, Monk's Cellar. If you're age 18 through 39 and find yourself in the Sacramento area, join us at a live event. Learn more at CatholicVeritas.com.